0: Welcome to A Life Lived Backwards, One Man's Life, the accompanying podcast to Larry Ruttman's memoir, A Life Lived Backwards, an existential triad of friendship, inquisitiveness, and maturation. Hi there, I'm Jordan Rich with a pretty easy task and a fun one at that. I pose questions to Larry and with that razor sharp memory of his and a great talent for storytelling, well, you just have to settle back and enjoy the ride. Love talking with Larry about a whole bunch of things, um, but as a lawyer, as an attorney, you've had an illustrious career and uh, have influenced a lot of people and met a lot of people along the way. You can't help it if you're active as you have been. So I thought we'd take some time and uh, touch on some names. Uh, may I just jump into the list that I have in front of me? Sure. The, list, the names are all uh, eminent, but the one that pops is the one that I think most people would recognize, Elliot Richardson. Who, of course, was famous locally but also nationally during the Watergate years, uh, as the Attorney General and all that. So, why don't we start with him, Elliot Richardson? How did you meet him, and what kind of a dude was he? Um, well, Elliot, um, who looked like Superman, yeah, he did.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I remember, and lived in Brookline, and uh, on an estate um, in Brookline. You know, came from, you know, great family uh, background. The way I met Elliot was uh, kind of funny, and it brings in one of these other people. Not exactly funny, but um, I was assigned to do a pro bono case very early in my career by Judge Charles Wysansky. Now, Charles Wysansky was probably the most famous federal judge in Massachusetts history. He was appointed in, I think, 1941 by Franklin Delano Roosevelt to mm. be a judge of the federal court in Massachusetts, and over— The intervening years between 1941 and when I ran into him in maybe 1960 or thereabouts, um, he built up tremendous power because he was a brilliant guy. I went to Harvard Law School and uh, he was a brilliant lawyer. So anyway, um, the case that was assigned to me, uh, I went to meet the guy in jail and he had been there for nine months on a relatively minor offense. There was a good defense to what he had done the Constitution says you should have a speedy trial. He hadn't had a speedy trial. So when the case came up before Judge Wysansky, I I mentioned this stuff, and I said, you know, this guy has been in jail for nine months. I mean, we should have a trial tomorrow. So he said, I don't know why he hasn't had a trial. Mm -hmm. He said, get Mr. Richardson down here. At that time, Mr. Richardson was upstairs as the as the United States uh, attorney attorney right. for Massachusetts. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So um, what ha- what occurred was that um, Elliot uh, Richardson invited me to come up come up to his office, and we talked for a while. Anyway, the result of that is, of course, Richardson um, realized that uh, the man should have been should have had his trial. But more than that, he realized that there were, there were the man had a good case. So we straightened the case out, the charges were dropped, the guy got out of jail. That was it was a fine result. Now you might think that um Elliot Richardson would sort of be a little bit disgruntled
0: because yeah, you're on the other side.
1: Because I'm on the other side <laughs> and, and I you know did something that was a cause of embarrassment. Far from that we became for very friendly for the rest of our you know rest of his life. And every time we would meet it was very cordial. Larry the Democrat uh, Elliot Richardson, the Republican, both from uh, from Brookline. And um, so we had a nice relationship. So, uh, you know, one mm. time, Lois and I were in Geneva. And, you know, Elliot had a reputation for sometimes having a drink more than he might have should. And so um, he was coming in the other direction down the—right uh, along the lake with somebody else. And he, he was a little— unsteady little and lois who's very careful who she knew i was very friendly with him she said don't you call out to him and i didn't and um so that uh but he was he was a brilliant lawyer he was he was there at the law of the sea conference uh which he was very uh instrumental in and um i believe that uh Elliot Richardson distinguished himself much as Mitt Romney did recently as a profile in Courage because, as you mentioned, he was active in the Watergate case. And the Midnight Massacre, when Nixon Mm. wanted to fire – wanted Richardson to fire um,
0: Archibald Archibald
1: Cox, Cox, the – Richardson – I mean, uh, yeah, Elliot Richardson would not do that. That's right. And um, he said, no, I was – he was appointed and it's not up to me to do that. So Nixon fired him and fired, I guess, uh, Cox as well. So Richardson was, um, you know, he was thought of as a man who could rise higher, but he rose high enough. And he was, uh, you know, I would say Elliot Richardson was a a real credit to Massachusetts. It it also
0: says something about Brookline, a fascinating town in in Massachusetts, that you could have— Somebody like yourself, who was raised and still practices being a Jew, and you could have the most Brahmin of Brahmins. (laughs) And in the same community, ultimately becoming friends with with little in common in terms of religious background and political background. And yet, there you go, friendship. It's the theme of many of our podcasts.
1: Well, didn't I tell you, um, Jordan, that you would take me in a direction that was unexpected?
0: That's my role. I'm uh, your GPS of a different sort. Brookline is a
1: remarkable town uh, just for that, or at least was. I think it's changed to some extent lately. But when I was a town meeting member back in the 60s and even during the 70s and 80s and so forth, there was a collegiality between opposing forces in the town, whether you're talking about Brahmin and Jew or whether you're talking about Irish and Jew or you talk about all the various strains of people that lived in Brookline— a lot, a lot of people were very interested in town governance and uh, doing the right thing and education and history. A lot of amazing people lived in Brookline. Uh, it was a very—I uh, don't know whether the right word is civilized or what, but it is an amazing town. I think at one time there were like eight—I No, I think we've had a, quite a few Nobel laureates. Uh, one time there were like six or seven alive living in the hmm. town. I wow. interviewed one of them. Wolfgang Ketterle, originally from Germany, who won the uh, won the uh, won a Nobel, and um, so there have been. Some, it is uh, an incredible town, and I'm trying to think who was it that brought that to my attention just recently. Um, but people people have always said that. And I think that's changed though, because the country has become div- divisive, and there's a lot of. Pulls and pushes in the
0: opposite. Yeah, direction. It, it's definitely changed. But uh, let's get back to some of these individuals. Here's a name. Now th- there may be more than one. Edward McCormick. Boy, does that name sound familiar? If you're from Boston, you hear the name McCormick, and that rings a bell. Uh, which one was he? <laughs> Well, his uncle was
1: the Speaker of the House That's of the
0: what I was hoping you'd say. Uh, that was John McCormick, wasn't John, it? John. Right, famous so, yeah. Speaker of the House for a long time. Yeah,
1: well, I, I mean, I'm not going to tell you another Carla story, but uh, when I used to come back to Boston, she and I and friends um, would uh, would go down to follow the race, but the first race uh, between— um, but I guess his son died just recently between Adley Stevenson—his son died about a week ago—and mm-hmm. uh, uh, and, uh, Dwight, Dwight Eisenhower. Dwight Eisenhower,
0: 52, yeah. right? So yeah.
1: that uh, Eddie McCormick—I mean that uh, McCormick's uncle spoke at that rally at that time. I guess he was uh, speaker, and he exchanged that role with uh, Joe Martin. I guess it was his first name, Joe Martin, who was the Republican Speaker of the House. So Massachusetts was well represented then, mm-hmm. as it's always been. Eddie ran uh, to become the attorney general of Massachusetts, and that is where I met him because through the good graces of an important member of the Brookline community, uh, Sumner Kaplan, who fit very nicely in Democratic circles, he induced Eddie McCormick to appoint me first as a legal assistant and then an assistant attorney general For civil rights in his office where I worked uh, on one of the most important 20th century Supreme Court cases ever with another person that's mentioned here, Jerry Berlin, uh, who was the head of that office. And uh, so when I went in to see Eddie um, a couple of months after he appointed me and said that I wanted to go to Europe on a trip with the Boston Bar Association. I'd never been to Europe. He said, what, you have been here a couple of months and you want to go to Europe already? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, yeah, I do.
0: So he said, okay.
1: And uh,
0: What was what was the case, though, that people want to know about?
1: Florida guy, um, were accused of a uh, crime. Uh, no lawyer appointed for him. Facts would help him, would help him. Um, no lawyer, he tried to defend himself. Was not able to defend himself successfully, found guilty. He he filed. Uh, he put in jail, I guess, and he filed a case uh, that the took it to the Supreme Court. And uh, Gideon versus Wainwright mm. was the name of the case. That's a biggie. <laughs> uh, it, it's a, it's really a big case, and uh, and the argument before the Supreme Court was that under the Constitution of the United States, uh, in two separate uh, sections of the Constitution. He should have counsel appointed in a case like that. And the Supreme Court agreed he did get counsel. The counsel defended him. The counsel got him not guilty. Now, um, my part in the case was that um, the the appeal to the Supreme Court was um, taken by Walter Mondale Mm -hmm. when he was the attorney general of Minnesota, I guess it was, Mm -hmm. and um, 33 states— joined to file an amicus brief, um, which is a friend of the court brief, to go along with his brief uh, asking for this relief. And um, and that was quite something. And uh, Jerry Berlin was a brilliant attorney from Virginia originally with a a, a southern accent that made him sound softer than he was. He was a tough attorney who was very bright. And um, so... He was really the main writer or speaker for the uh, amicus brief. And, and uh, I had a little part in writing that, but I was, you know, junior to Jerry, and I was given the job of taking the brief, many copies of the brief, to Washington, D.C. to file them in the Supreme Court at 29 years of age. Now, might not sound like a big deal to file it. I was really a gopher. But you know, it was a big thing to me because.
0: Oh my gosh! Uh, first of all, to be, even be associated with any portion of a, a ruling that impressive—that's you learn about that even not in law school. You learn about that in history class in high school. Gideon versus Wayne.
1: Oh, absolutely! And that's uh, cool.
0: You know, and it was the days before electronic transfers, and uh, you you actually carried the papers to I did. Washington. That's very interesting.
1: And I stayed in the Y, and little did I know that the Y was a hotbed of homosexuality. So I had to. So they, you know, these guys were <laughs> roaming the car. Oh,
0: jeez! I didn't see that one coming. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that was, but I, I didn't spend yeah. much much time at the Y. But um, in, in any event, um, yeah, uh, that was uh, that was a great experience. So on this particular list, uh, you could say that um, Wysansky, uh, uh you know that. These people blend into one another.
0: There are a couple of names that we might have mentioned in previous episodes, but let's just do a a run-through because it's worth mentioning them again. Paul Sugarman, also an attorney.
1: Well, Paul Sugarman is probably the best-known attorney uh, in the last half-century, the last uh, uh, half-century of the 2000s. I mean, excuse me, of the uh, 1900s. Uh, He became—well, Paul and I met— when Lois and I bought our house in 1969, we hired a guy uh, to uh, help us with the landscaping, Charles Turofsky, and he did some great stuff, including planting a Japanese maple that has grown to maturity, just as he said he it would, uh, to become very valuable and beautiful. They tell me the what it's worth now, and I can't believe it. But in any event, Turofsky ran into a divorce situation, and Paul Sugarman, who at that time was not yet Paul Sugarman, so to speak, was the attorney on the other side. Now, Paul proved to be uh, very nice to work with. We settled the case, no problem. Uh, They got their divorce. And Paul Sugarman and I became friendly uh, because of the tree and Turovsky and the case. <laughs> I named that portion of the uh, of a life lived backwards my memoir. Well, I start off this way: Why is it I'm reminded of my years at the bar and a dear friend when I look at the magnificent Japanese maple which stands in front of our house? And then I say that Paul Sugarman and I became friends. Anyway, I made reference to the uh, to the maple being important because I, it got me to. Paul Sugarman.
0: That's, great. That's now, great. Now,
1: now, Paul Sugarman. You know, he went on to be the president of the Mass Bar Association. Uh, the, he was appointed the dean of the uh, Suffolk Law School. He was the president of the Board of Bar Overseers. He was the top civil trial lawyer in the state, winning judgments of multi-million dollars on cases. His firm, Sugarman and Sugarman. Still goes on. His brother, Neil, 10 years younger, is a great attorney. Paul Sugarman is known in legal circles all over the country. And Paul, when I ran into difficulties and suffered a depression back around 30 years ago, I went to Paul and I said, you know, I'm having this trouble well, to make a long story short, he said, we've got to stop this bleeding. He said, I'm going to appoint somebody uh, on my staff, uh, a partner of his, uh, Steve Hoffman, who's a terrific guy, still active, not at, at the firm. He went into public service law in the attorney general's office. Now, these were were high-minded types who always wanted to do the right thing. And between Hoffman and, uh, and Sugarman, you know, I got over it. Um, and uh, they helped me a great deal. I don't know that I would be here today doing what I'm doing or sitting with you without Paul Sugarman. Mm. He, and he's totally different than I am, uh, Jordan. Paul's a very serious guy, and uh, not that he doesn't have a light side, but uh, he's he gives the impression of what he is, which is a very serious, directed
0: Responsible, intelligent individual, but obviously a giving individual and one with a heart. Oh,
1: oh yeah! I mean, right away he said, "We got to stop the bleeding," mm. and he told me afterwards. He said, "A lot of people uh, he's helped uh, never really thanked him," and I—it's I, that's hard for me to understand because what he did for me, I—I I, recognize to, to uh, every day mm. he was great in my life, and I tell him so. We still meet. I went to dinner and uh, mm. he, and he wrote me. Now he's he's fairly laconic. He was no, he's not the guy that would write a long letter. When I when I came out with my with my first book Voices of Brookline, and again when I did uh, uh, the one about baseball, American Jews in America's game. He wrote me long letters, how he loved the book and how he was. It was so wonderful to see what i've done and you know it was just Mm. i i i would i opened the envelope and i read the letter and i said i just couldn't imagine that paul would write this kind of a letter i i thought i thought he would write something
0: nice well it it also points out the fact that you know when you get to know somebody and have a relationship that's beyond just the cursory you, you discover a lot about people and sometimes they're they're not they're shy about admitting it or or extending a hand like that to just anybody, but that's a good sign of a deep relationship there.
1: It was a deep relationship, and we're two different and kinds still of guys, he, and he would never blow his own horn, and I'm Mr. Blowhard, but we get along. <laughs> <laughs>
0: All right, Mr. Blowhard, we have time to talk about a few more people. Um, Morris Michelson, I believe, is it how, is that how you say it, Michelson or Mickelson? No, Michelson. Michelson. I think we've mentioned him briefly, but give us the update.
1: Well, I, that was my first job uh, at uh, when I got out of law school in 1958. And Morris was known as a lawyer's lawyer. He would take impossible cases and win them. Why? Civil cases. Because they very thorough, very meticulous, uh, you know, sort of borderline antisocial. Um, but, <laughs> and he would uh, study the cases and write up very careful outlines. And anyway, he would— he would just he would outmaneuver and outfox and outstudy the opposing lawyer, and he would win the cases, usually. A and, good good uh, role
0: model, right there. For oh, you.
1: absolutely. And he probably wondered about me, because I was not exactly cut from the same cloth. But um, on the other hand, uh, I you know I recognized him. He was born in 1903, so when I went to work for him, he was like 55. And the last time I saw him was in his own office back, I think, in 1988, when he was 85. And um, so Morris was a highly thought-of attorney, a good guy, as you say, a role model to work for. I met uh, and the other lawyer that was hired at that time by him. I think we were paid $50 a week or something like that, um, was a guy named Bruce Phillips. I don't know whether he's still with us. I was in contact with him maybe four or five years ago down in Pittsburgh. And he and I went— to the first game, we, we played hooky from Morris's office to go and see Kaja Stremsky's first game in which he hit a single and a characteristic double to the opposite field off the fence. And um, so that uh, that's a strange thing. Well, another thing that Michelson did for me, he, he advanced my life in two separate categories. First of all, he was a great lover of classical music. Mm. At that time, I didn't know classical music from Shinola. And he... He interested me. He liked, he liked, uh, he didn't like symphonic. He liked all kinds of classical music, but he liked uh, chamber music more than symphonic music. I like symphonic more than chamber, but I love them all. The other thing was that he was a member of the American Jewish Congress Commission on Law and Social Action. This had a lot of brilliant attorneys in it, and he took me along to the meetings. I met people like Eddie Barshak and other people. Who were very active, and uh, uh, Larry Locke, who was the wrote the book on uh, workers' compensation, and um, from these people, I developed a notion of Jewish history, and it be, it, it got me into a deeper recognition of my own faith. Hmm. So Morris Michaelson was important. a very
0: influential figure. Two other names. In this episode that we'll cover, and one of them is Melvin Newman. Mel Newman, Esquire.
1: Yeah, let's talk about Mel Newman and Julian Cohen. T- okay,
0: together. T- together, sure.
1: Uh, we've already talked and that'll really complete the list, won't it?
0: I believe so. So yeah. okay is, so
1: so uh, Mel Newman was an attorney in Brooklyn. Uh, he had he about ten years older than I was. He's passed away now. He was a pretty brilliant attorney. As a matter of fact, when he died 10 years ago, I was amazed. Uh, that the, I think about three or 400 people turned up at his funeral. He was a brilliant real estate lawyer. One thing I learned from—and you know, Mel knew—it I, 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 was a deal that was often made. I was a young attorney. He was an older, very successful attorney. He would give me space in his office. I would handle some of his cases. I would bring in my cases, but we would share the results on those. and. Um, That was the business deal. Mel Newman used to be able to dictate contracts and serious legal documents off the top of his head. Mm. And I'd look at him in wonderment. And um, how did he do that? So one day he signed me to write a, uh, a document for the insurance company, wanted our version of a document on an important case. So I wrote it as best I could. And the insurance attorney says to Melvin, that really is very well-written. It's, uh, uh, it's not written like a lawyer. It's not a fuscatory. It doesn't—he ha- can understand it. That, that kid is a good draftsman. And I think Mel probably was surprised by that one. <laughs> so that—so uh, <laughs> so I said to myself, if he can do those documents off the top of his head, why can't I? So I tried, and I could—
0: <laughs> That's yeah, a big time saver. He, he inspired you to to be a better lawyer. Oh, absolutely. Be you know,
1: Mel was, a, and he was a horseman too. He used to go out to the, out in, uh, not, uh, it was in Milton or one of those places where there was a, he had a horse out there and he would ride. Mm. He was highly respected. Now, Julian Cohen is an amazing person. Julian Cohen was a real estate developer. He's the developer of the Chestnut Hill Mall.
0: Oh, a very well-known uh, place here in New England,
1: and he's he he was a major, multi-million-dollar contributor to the Boston Symphony Orchestra, mm. and the director the director's seat, formerly held by who just retired, formerly held by um, uh, I'm trying to think of the guy's name, Mark Volpe. Yeah, Mark
0: Volpe. Sure, I know Mark.
1: Yeah, do you, okay? And my, and so now he's gone. Some lady took it over, but that is called the Julian Cohen. Ch- ah,
0: okay. Chair. Yes, I've I've done a lot at Symphony Hall, and I've seen his name.
1: Yeah, and Julian
0: Attached. W- was he was a big
1: uh, philanthropist, but anyway, Julian was a very shy guy. Now here's a guy that went into the army during World War II, and then when he then he came back and uh, as a real estate developer, not only the Chestnut Hill Mall but other developments and made billions of dollars, but he was very shy. Now, somehow—so when I was doing my book on Brookline, I wanted to interview Julian. So I got in touch with him, and I said, uh, I, you know, I didn't—and Mel Newman was his lawyer. So I got in touch with Julian, and I said, um, I'd like to interview you. He said, well, he says, he says I, I'm not going to do it, Larry. He said, if I would do it for anybody, I would do it for you because I really like you, which surprised me. Hmm. So I, and so then later, you know, some years later, he and in, he invited me to have lunch with him at the Chestnut Hill Mall at some restaurant up there, Chinese, I think it was, and we were talking. He says, "I'm going to let you on. I know how much you love music, Larry. I want to tell you that uh, that um, something nobody knows, and I want you to keep it under your hat." He said, "But." Um, James Levine is going to come and be the music director of the Boston Symphony Orchestra. And I practically jumped out of my seat. James Levine? I mean, nobody knew at that time that he would later be accused of all this stuff. Yeah, he
0: had some, some mis, misdeeds that he had to account for. Yeah, right. For. So,
1: but he did come to the... Uh, to, the, And he's, he was a great... He is a great... Was a great musician. Was a great musician, yeah. And he came uh, to... Um, so you
0: had the inside dope on that one, huh?
1: Yeah, and so Julian... Um, Julian was a was another guy that was very self-effacing, very shy, uh, didn't want to appear on a uh, interview program, but um, he was very friendly with me. I don't know I, as I've said to you before, I'm sometimes in wonderment of why people... Shine up to me the way they do. Like, like you, Jordan, you're a great, great man. You like me, I tell God. You,
0: I do like you. And I'll, I'll tell you, I think I know the reason why, because you're accessible. You make it easy for people to get to know you pretty quickly through this series we're doing, but also just in life. You'll, you're a hearty fellow, well met. And there are a lot of shy people. If you ever listen to Prairie Home Companion, you know about shy people. But there are a lot of shy people. More people than not are shy, I think, Larry. And you're the kind of guy who's effusive and wants to get to know people. and is curious, and people are attracted to that. Inquisitive. Inquisitive, curious. Well, that's the word, inquisitive. Yeah, no, absolutely.
1: Um, yeah, I, 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 think, I, th- <laughs> I think maybe you're correct because I do – I don't carry much – I don't carry any hate in my heart. Um, I think that I really do like to meet people. I do like to talk to people. And as much as Lois says, for Christ's sake, shut up. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you need somebody like Lois in your life, though, to rein you in. I've got a wife who does the same thing. We need a little bit of uh, uh, self-censorship occasionally. Well, we're going to be talking about some legal cases that stand out. You've uh, been a practicing attorney for a lot of years, so you've done thousands, I'm sure. But we'll talk about a few. This is really fun and uh, a nice tribute to some of the people who influenced you and who have been a part of your life in the in the legal profession. So thank you, my friend. Okay. This has been A Life Lived Backwards, One Man's Life, the accompanying podcast to Larry Ruttman's memoir, A Life Lived Backwards, an existential triad of friendship, inquisitiveness, and maturation. You can subscribe and download this podcast, available on all podcast platforms. For information on Larry, his books, lectures, and much more, visit the website LarryRutman.com. Also check out the extensive Larry Rutman page on Wikipedia. This is Jordan Rich inviting you to join us again next time as Larry shares more stories about friendship, inquisitiveness, and maturation on A Life Lived Backwards, One Man's Life.